0: Welcome back to episode two of the Global Guessing Weekly podcast. My name is Andrew Eady. I'm joined here with Clay Grabard, and you'll notice while we don't have a guest today, we do have some very interesting topics related to geopolitics and forecasting that we think you'll all be interested in. We're going to jump right into it. Um, the first story that we're going to talk about is the recent report that came out today, uh, released by the U.S. regarding Jamal Khashoggi's killing back in 2018, by, as the report alleges you know, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, MBS. What were your thoughts on that? That was sort of a big deal today. Oh,
1: huge deal. I mean, no one expected this coming out, that the crown prince was behind the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. (laughs) Um, No, I think um,
0: (laughs) it's a big plot twist. No one
1: (laughs) one saw this one coming. Um, Yeah, I mean, what could be said about it, right? It it took a few days longer than the media said it was for this report to come out because Biden wanted to talk to the king beforehand. Um, It's something that we didn't know beforehand, right? It it leaked during the last administration that the crown prince was behind it. And so it's just making it public. I think probably the biggest uh, thing that I found not sort of surprising, but noteworthy was that the Biden administration went out of their way to say that there wouldn't be any sanctions as a result of this report. Um, and that it was I believe they said too complicated i' I haven't read everything about the release of the report. I just remember hearing that in particular in the news, which I thought was quite noteworthy that you know this damning report comes out that implicates the de facto leader of Saudi Arabia, even if the Biden administration wants to treat the king as the primary leader, and that there's sort of no repercussions besides sort of bad p r
0: that was my biggest takeaway as well, all right You have this report um that's supposed to be, as you said, incredibly damning. The Crown Prince approved for these, you know, trained assassins basically to go and kill this journalist. That is the antithesis of what America stands for, right? Free speech and speaking truth to power. Um, but there's no penalizing of MBS, um, and I think it was even said, it, you know, in the report that there's no penalizing of, of MBS because the U.S. doesn't want to risk rupturing their relationship with Saudi Arabia. Um And as you mentioned, you know, he spoke with the king before releasing the report. So this all sort of points to the fact that I think the report was released to show that Biden is different than Trump and that he's not going to stand by while Saudi Arabia commits atrocities. However, I think it also shows that the U.S. is very much the same United States that we were under Trump and that, you know, well, maybe we say that these things matter to us. You know, are we willing to act? Um, I think it's a little bit different than that,
1: right? I think on one hand, right, you know, Biden made a campaign promise where he said that he's going to hold Saudi Arabia accountable. So he can't just get into office and then hide the report. And there are no sort of direct penalties on Saudi Arabia either. But you do have this sort of very at least sort of symbolic gesture of the Biden and action by the Biden administration where they're sort of delegitimizing the authority of MBS and putting the sort of the decision making power, at least in terms of optics back into the king's hand, which that's a good point. is in some right, that's sort of like a direct penalty on MBS that doesn't um, hurt the rest of the world. I think the real question will be, you know, moving forward, does the Biden administration sort of keep up that negotiate really with the king and sideline MBS or is that just something that they did in these initial months in the lead up to the report? And that's sort of like what their punishment is uh, for MBS. And they don't want to do more because they don't want to risk, you know, alienating an important ally still in the region.
0: It's a great question, especially that last point, right? They're still a very important ally. Um, you know, Iran is a bit under the thumb of a few countries right now. A lot of countries have moved forward in the region and sort of left Iran in the past. And so staying close to Israel, staying close to Saudi Arabia will help to maintain that that positioning and that balance. Um but Saudi Arabia is making it a little bit difficult. It'll be very interesting to see what happens, you know, with those two countries, that bilateral relationship through 2021 and beyond.
1: Yeah, and it, it's also interesting to see, like, how this affects sort of future arms sales, right? Like, I think the U.S. is also in some ways tied because one of the largest forms of leverage was how many arms the U.S. was supplying to Saudi Arabia. But um, I believe the Saudis came out and said that there's like there's no change in the the moving away from American Um, made arms, and I think that also just sort of affects the relationship that they have there and that um, Biden also just doesn't want to make any sort of negative effects that would roll back the progress of the uh, Abrams Accords either. Um, At least that's sort of how I see it. I don't know how you see it.
0: 100%. I think, uh, you know, it's clear that Saudi Arabia has a lot of power. It doesn't seem like the U.S. is trying to uh, stifle that power at all. It seems like it's just trying to um, sort of change where it's directed, and so you can see that with the way that we, um, you know, handled Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen and and the carpet bombing there, and how we tried to put a stop to that. We're not stopping the sale of arms to Saudi Arabia. We're just saying, you know, don't use it in this way. And so I think that's a really good point. The arms sales are going to be an inter- interesting thing to watch moving forward.
1: And I I also think you know just to talk about the prediction that we did this week, right? We made a prediction that. Uh, I think it's a 21% chance that Saudi Arabia and Israel normalizes relations by the end of this year. And in some ways, I think this event, I don't know how important it is in the grand scheme of things, but it's definitely like slightly bullish on those odds, because it's not something that will um, damage the relationship, right? This could have also been part of the U.S.'s, you know, bargaining chip towards Saudi Arabia, this Frank, this relatively light um, punishment that's been given out with respect to this. Um, Now, maybe, you know, that as we talked about in our article, and and you were really big on bringing up as a constraint, was the king's personal thoughts um, on the uh, Israel Palestinian conflict. And this sort of lighter punishment that's being put on primarily MBS rather than the country might go a step in sort of um, making the king. A little bit more on board with things because, um, you know, the punishment is not coming on to Saudi Arabia as a whole. Um,
0: I think it's a great observation. Yeah, I think, you know, the US is not uh, blaming Saudi Arabia for the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, right? They're very specifically targeting both MBS in terms of his general culpability, but also they did sanction, um, you know, some of the Royal Guard and the people who were under his command. And so I think they're definitely trying to we talked about this before the podcast, but, you know, walk this tightrope separating the culprits from the state so that you can still work with the state to get things done, um, you know, like normalize relations with Israel or talk to them about, you know, how negotiations will end up going with Iran and the JCPOA, which we'll get into later, um, Yeah, without damaging that relationship. So that's a good point.
1: Yeah. And I think it just it's it's also part of the sort of the other story that happened this week. Um, which comes with the airstrike that the Biden administration um, conducted against uh, Iranian-backed militia forces in Syria, which again, I I think is also sort of tight walking the road. Um, This was Biden's first uh, airstrike, which I don't know the historical rates of uh, presidents doing drone strikes, but I remember seeing a news article uh, last week, I believe, where they made a note that Biden hadn't Uh, conducted an airstrike yet into office whereas you know the no the the newsworthy part seemingly was that other presidents normally do them a lot sooner into office um so I think you know Biden administration is trying to say like they're trying to tightwalk the difference saying that it's not just the Obama administration being continued in foreign policy we're not going to do drones all the time because that got bipartisan critique at the same time there's also the need for um Appropriate responses in 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 military actions and the Biden administration can't do um, nothing as well. Uh, they just don't want to take a a step that will also piss off Iran and perhaps ruin the odds of a nuclear deal uh, being resumed as well. But what 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 was your take on the drone strike that the Biden administration did in Syria?
0: Yeah. So just for context for people who don't sort of know the backstory of what of what's going on there. Um, There were some U.S. uh, contractors and uh, people part of a U.S. coalition who were in Iraq uh, on February 15th, and they were hit with a rocket strike. Um, And one person was killed and a few were injured. And so 10 days passed. And then on the 25th, Biden carried out an airstrike um, sort of right on the border of Iraq and Syria um, and ended up attacking some facilities and killing some some Iran-backed militia. I think the final count was somewhere close to 22. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's a lot of what you said, right? It's uh, walking that tightrope because apparently Biden had talked to Iraq before he carried out the strike um, to let them know that, one, he was going to do it in Syria, right? He didn't do it in Iraq where, where the Americans were hit because he didn't want to damage that relationship. Um, and then also making sure that everybody knows that it's a very measured strike, right? This is proportionate. The U.S. was attacked, so they're attacking back. It's not sort of a declaration of war. Um, it's interesting to see the feedback, actually, on, on things like Twitter. It's been really fascinating. The right, Lindsey Graham, praised the attack, said Biden did a great job for showing, you know, American force in the region and not letting us get pushed around. Whereas the left, Ilhan Omar, you know, was drawing, uh, was trying to evoke uh, sentiments of, of hypocrisy compared to how the left would treat airstrikes from Trump during his administration saying, what's the big difference? And so it is interesting to see sort of uh, who he's catering to with some of his decisions and how he's how he's deciding his foreign policy. Um, and the last thing I'll say, I mean, this strike was carried out I think 36 or 37 days into office. In my head, when I first realized that, I thought that was um, very quick. So I very quickly went to Google to see when Trump carried out his first military action, and his was nine days in office. It was a raid in Yemen, and so apparently, like you said, it's not actually that fast. You know, a lot of presidents have have moved quicker than Biden. So that was interesting as well.
1: Yeah, I do think, um, unlike the first instance with Jamal Khashoggi, sorry, just moving tracks, you know, we talked yeah. with Jamal Khashoggi how that related to the Metaculous Monday prediction we made on Israeli-Saudi normalization. I think this one goes to the one we made in volume two, talking about uh, the U.S. rejoining the JCPOA or the Iran nuclear deal, Um as it's also known by by the end of this year. And I think unlike the first one where um, there seems to have been like a real give and take, I think nothing that was done with respect to this um, retaliation and drone strike by the by the Biden administration fundamentally changes any of the constraints on any of the actors making the nuclear deal more likely. Do you feel the same way? Or do you think that um, the fact that the Biden administration was willing to make a definitively moderate response, I mean, killing 22 individuals, we can is certainly not moderate from a certain perspective, but in comparison to the last administration and in comparison to predecessors with the rate of drone strikes, this is definitely more moderate military action. And so do you think that perhaps makes it more likely that you know, the U.S. relieves sanctions on Iran by the end of the year?
0: I think I think I agree that it doesn't really change the constraints. And if anything, I think both um, sort of the airstrike, uh, you know, that we're talking about with the Iranian-backed militia and also what we were talking about with the sanctions on, on Saudi Arabia, I think they both might even hurt the chances of the U.S. rejoining the JCPOA this year. I think, um, you know, carrying out a drone strike on Iranian-backed militia Obviously, the government um, probably can't outwardly say that that they were supported by the Iranian government, but I mean that definitely can't help negotiations. Um, and then I think also not carrying out sort of the full uh, power of the law, so to speak, on on MBS and really punish him for his atrocities is also not going to help negotiations. I think going easy on Saudi Arabia and taking an action that's you know ostensibly hurting the Iranian state are both um, actions that it's not going to destroy negotiations by any means. I think both parties seem eager to rejoin. It's just a matter of who's going to move first and concede more. Um, But I I definitely think, you know, that I agree. It's either not going to change anything or it's going to hurt the chances.
1: And how significant do you think it would hurt the chances, right? Because I'm I'm pretty confident in the relatively neutral impact. Um, But in your mind, like, could this actually, if I want to just take that back real quick, um mm-hmm. the killing of 22 i mean they're iranian back forces not iranians if i'm not mistaken correct yeah um, no, they weren't from their yeah so i think that definitely blunts the effect it'll have definitively but it also does come during an election year um in iran and so any sort of drone strike it, it We were talking about how these next few months are the most likely where anything will happen because sanctions relief would be a huge boost to the Iranian economy and therefore be a boost for the moderates in the upcoming election. And so if we were to see action, we feel it's either going to happen now or if the moderates were to win um, pretty handily in the upcoming election. And this event might just make it politically less likely for... um, the president of Iran to um, you know take those steps to releasing uh to rejoining the JcpoA without the u.s moving first so actually I hey, I, I could see how it could be a, a negative impact
0: yeah and I think as you said with the election coming up obviously you want to bring in favor with your populace and I think um, posing up with the us after they carry out a strike on as you said they're not Iranian soldiers but you know understandably they're soldiers backed by the Iranian government hearing out, um, for Iranian interests, you know, the populace would not be happy with in response to those people being killed around saying, all right, well, let's cozy up to the U S and rejoin this deal. So I agree. I think, um, I think politically domestically and, uh, internationally, it's probably not looking likely at least in the, in the foreseeable future.
1: But if you let's do, let's leave a little final update. Um, Let's look at both stories and say positive, neutral, or negative impact on the likelihood. So let's first do the Jamal Khashoggi report and Israeli Saudi relations by the end of 2021. We originally said 21% chance. My initial view on it is neutral with maybe a slight positive increase. You?
0: A slight positive increase is in it, might be more likely that they'll rejoin? Per- yeah, perhaps 22 or 23. Okay. I think I'd probably say the inverse. So less likely, but not by a lot either. I think um with Khashoggi what the US did was not a positive movement towards Iran, but it also wasn't unexpected. I think any state looking at the international system can understand why the US did what they did. So I don't think it's gonna hurt negotiations that much. Um with the Iranian backed militia also I don't think um it's gonna hurt negotiations that much. They weren't Iranians, you know, they were an Iranian military, and so I think that helps a ton. Um, I think that's also the reason why states tend to use these sort of paramilitary forces, and, so that they're not forced into action if something happens to them, um, you know, geopolitically. So I think I agree. Uh, yeah, and then on the Iranian not, one. Not a big swing.
1: Yeah, for Iranian one, I would I'm, I would say it's a, a wash, personally. I wouldn't move it from, I think we gave that one 20%. I would... I would personally stick there, just because I think the fact that, as you were saying, the foreign-backed troops, I just think it it won't have a significant enough effect. And, you know, most geopolitics news is just noise at the end of the day, right? Not everything is going to be a signal that uh, the fundamentals have changed in a situation, and that, for the most part, the situation and the constraints and preferences of the actors involved really just don't change week to week.
0: You just put in a lot of authors there. You had some Nate Silver. You had some Marco Popic. That was good. That was nice.
1: And okay. uh, speaking of Marco, uh, I feel like less people know about him, uh, but we have started to read his book called Geopolitical Alpha. I think you're a little bit further along in it, so maybe you want to give a little introduction about it and we can just talk about you know, why we're reading the book and what we hope to get out of it.
0: So just some background. Marco Popic is um, he's a chief strategist and a partner at the Clock Tower Group um he is a product of of Stratfor so for those of you who don't know that's sort of one of the premier geopolitical risk firms out there it's based in Austin Texas um and actually i think uh, our last our last guest on the podcast Balkan Devlin was was involved with Stratfor at one point as well um so yeah that's sort of his background and he his book really seeks to um to demonstrate the importance um of, of geopolitics in investing and so he basically makes the case that in the past geopolitical analysis has been exogenous to investing decisions um, it has sort of existed on the peripheries of the information that investors tend to look at when they're making their investing decisions um, and hasn't really been taken into account uh in sort of a serious way and so his case now is that times have changed markets aren't just going up uh, geopolitics has a big effect on the way the uh, markets move, and so we have to pay attention to to geopolitics to better understand how to invest and how to get alpha, basically. Uh, and that's sort of the title of his book, is Geopolitical Alpha.
1: He says the markets don't always go up.
0: But says, I, was, I, big I was aware of
1: uh, an old <laughs> adage communities... stocks only go up.
0: That's right. I know. Listen, is Marco aware of hear. the money
1: printer, or the of the trillions of dollars
0: we've let in? I think. I know Marco doesn't believe in tendies. It seems, um, but I think I think his perspective is apt, and I think it's also super relevant to the work that we do. Uh, you know, geopolitical forecasting and sort of speaks to also the value of the work that we do. Right, it's not just for fun, but a lot of the things that we forecast um, are actionable in the sense that you can take that information um, and derive a a framework, uh, an investing thesis from that. So I think um, you know his book is great reading for us, and you know for anybody else out there who's interested in in forecasting. Um,
1: yeah, it, it's it's I've only read the introduction. I'll be completely honest, but it's it yeah. um, it's definitely gripped me already. Um, he writes pretty well, and the idea of the book I think is really interesting, and he he puts it in really sort of these concrete terms. The idea of focusing first on constraints um, and then looking at preferences because constraints always exist regardless of preferences was really compelling to me and the part that really caught my eye in the introduction was he mentioned this idea of you know you can say on one hand this on the other hand this um, and that's great when you're abstractly thinking about things but uh, he gives an example where he was on a phone call and he had to you know state the impact of something on the markets and he had to reach a decision right away and i i think what i want to see is perhaps he'll give a list of heuristics and frameworks for um being able to quickly balance and weight on one hand this on the other hand this and make that um make the the combination and and uh synthesizing of everything um A lot easier because I think for us when we make predictions we're really good at laying out on the one hand this on the other hand that but I think it's the combination of all those to reach the sort of final impact that I think we could definitely use a fair amount of improvement on because we're new to forecasting and I I hope that this book will um, help out in that regard too. I don't know if you've noticed that yet in the book. I don't know how far you are either.
0: Yeah no definitely and I think um, you know, we talked about constraints. If you read our last two Metaculous Mondays, constraints come into play and in the way that we approach our, our forecasts. Um, and I think, you know, he uses constraints sort of at a very macro level to talk about the relationship between geopolitics and economics. Right. He says, um, you know, we like to think about the uh, market movers and the Fed and these people that are changing interest rates. And that's all well and good. But all of that has to fit within the geopolitical entity of the state. Right. And um, you know, the state's relationship with other states and, and how they interact. And so um, even even economics can be seen in, you know, in some cases as a preference um, that's subject to the constraint that is the state and, and the state's geopolitical uh, stance and, and orientation in the world. So I think um, we're definitely going to lean on that a bit as we move forward, because also it's nice for us, constraints sometimes can be um, quantified, right? So if you're talking about a constraint might be um, you know, a country's military force and you can actually count how big is their army, how big is their air force, what can they actually do? That sort of sort of calculus I think is gonna be really useful moving forward.
1: Definitely. Um and it also looks like it's it's pretty easy or um generally understandable book to read, which I also very much like. Um there's not a lot of yes, it's it's definitely written in a very accessible way. And I think the sort of last thing that I'm looking out for is just Um, what sort of predictions and forecasts are useful in uh, the finance space when it comes to geopolitics. And I imagine it'll be different than what the primary uh, items of concern for forecasting is purely in in the geopolitical and national security space. And so it'll be interesting to to see how um, determining the sort of usefulness of something... Uh, you do in, in the finance space versus um, in just purely geopolitics as well.
0: Yep, and I think also just last thing for some of the you know readers or watchers who are um, more quantitative minded, he does bring into play you know some some mathematics and some probability formulas and some things to sort of underpin his general thesis, which you know, on the surface seemed you know purely qualitative. And so I think that's something um, that'll be really interesting. For us to discuss and read, maybe on future podcasts, but also for you all to learn about as well.
1: Yeah, we can we
0: could you know have a little whiteboard and even put the formulas up too. Be fun. That's right. Yeah, just go through it. Yeah, and it's nice because first he'll explain what his framework is, and then he'll put it into quantitative terms. And so when you're looking at the equation be able to map it back to what he was saying, you know, in the chapter prior. And so um, as he said, it's all very readable, accessible. Um, and very informative as well
1: well I can't wait to uh, keep reading it and we'll uh, hopefully in a podcast episode or two come back with our, uh, our final thoughts on the book and what we uh, took away from it
0: um, and hopefully in a podcast five or six we'll come back with Marco himself
1: well that <laughs> would be a, a, an, an, an exciting <laughs> Global Guessing weekly podcast episode we'll yes, uh, would, have to himself. save it for the milestone of five or ten
0: exactly. exactly, it'd be a big one
1: it can't be an episode four thing though
0: no, absolutely not. Although the not
1: guests happy. that we'll have on episode four will be phenomenal and should feel very happy to be on episode four. We did not That's mean right. to talk bad about episode four at all. <laughs> In fact, I'm most excited about episode four of the Global Guessing Weekly podcast, frankly. Oh, here's a shuffle. Here's a
0: shuffle. he's so bad at this one.
1: Um, and so moving right along, uh, one of the things that Andrew and I want to do on the Global Guessing Weekly podcast, not every week, but um, most weeks, is make a live prediction on the website Metaculus, And so that is what we're going to do right now. Uh, We have not picked the question because we don't want to think about the question beforehand. And I think we're only going to give this about five, six minutes of deliberation from finding the question to answering the question, which means we're probably going to suffer on our score, but that's okay because
0: it's for the podcast.
1: So we're going to go. And you've
0: read... And if you've read our, our interview with Regina Joseph or watched our interview with Balkan Devlin, we've done a similar exercise where, you know, at the end of the interviews, we'll ask them to make some on-the-spot predictions. Um, granted, we're giving ourselves a bit more time than whatever we gave them. 30 Ten seconds, seconds or a minute. five seconds. Exactly. So now I feel bad. But um, I think it is a useful skill as a forecaster so to test yourself, not just doing these sort of long-form, really thoughtful predictions, but also testing your intuition and just trying to understand um, how to approach a question. So, All right, yes, yeah, perfect.
1: So now we have it open, and the podcast is now showing my browser. So we are in the. Yep. And Andrew, can you see it as well? I can. I also have a window. Phenomenal well. technology. All right. <laughs> um. Let's see. Which of these look? When will North Korea have
0: a McDonald's? It's probably the best one. No. Just do that one now.
1: <laughs> wow, we are very. Out of whack for the nuclear deal versus the community. It'll be interesting to see how this one pans out.
0: Be very interesting. Yeah, I think, I think what's what's interesting about crowd forecasting is that I think oftentimes when people see, you know, oh, it's at fifty-five percent. You know, a prediction might be at fifty-five percent. I can't make a prediction that's so far from that, or else you know it's definitely wrong. So it tends to be this it's not confirmation bias, but just this um, you know approach to forecasting that become that can become a bit. Um, unempirical.
1: Yeah. And I, I think, so you know, one thing that time. we should do is, um, you know, as, as, as Balkan was saying, when how, how he tries to look at whether or not the community is correct is try to argue the community standpoint and, and, and prediction. And I think perhaps if we continue to see this gap between us and the community is look back at the Iran nuclear deal and try to argue from a uh, from the median of 57% and see if we can get to it. Um, yep. but I'll just go back to searching for a question. Um, I kind of like the, the North Korea nuclear missile one, just because we have a pretty clear sure. base rate of, cause you know, North Korea likes to shoot off missiles. Um,
0: it's one That'd thing that too. they
1: like doing. Yeah, let's pull
0: that one up. So what okay. is the... The question sure the is, will the... North
1: Korea launch another intercontinental ballistic missile before 2022? This question will resolve positively if a missile with a range of more than 5.5 thousand 5, kilometers capable of hosting a nuclear warhead is launched by the North Korean government. Now, the missile has to be capable of... Haven't, like, none of their missiles made it very far?
0: Yeah, I think the missiles haven't made it very far. I'm also not sure when the last time they tested a missile was. I know there were two tests, I think, in 2017. Um, I'm not sure if they've done one since. Probably not in 2020. Not that COVID really has anything to do with nuclear tests. I just didn't Let's hear see, about North it.
1: North Korea
0: nuclear tests by year. Or, um no, missile tests. Yeah, I see BMs. Let's do North Korean missile tests. Oh, apparently, they did a short, a series of short range missiles in March, marking its first missile test in 2020.
1: March 2020, yeah. But
0: that was short range with an operational range of 240 kilometers. Short term, short term. And it looks like that followed. Um, threats in in January of that year, 2020, for Zoom nuclear and ICBM testing. So it might have just been, um, you know, a move to try and make their threat more credible uh, and not actually, you know, a sign of intent that they're doing anything too dangerous. Now,
1: let's see. North Korea developed nuclear missile programs, and I'm reading the top comment on Metaculus here. Mm -hmm. Um, just for people that are only listening to audio, uh, oh, it's smart. a report from the UN North Korea, uh, maintained and developed its nuclear and ballistic missile programs throughout 2020 in violation of international sanctions, helping fund them with some $300 million. In the past year, North Korea displayed new short, uh, range, medium range submarine launch and intercontinental, intercontinental ballistic missile systems at military parades. It is highly likely that a nuclear device could be mounted onto long-range, medium-range, and short-range ballistic missiles. Hmm. The member state, however, stated it was uncertain whether North Korea had developed uh, ballistic missiles resistant to the heat generated during re-entry.
0: My initial feeling is that as bad as he was of a president, in my personal opinion, Donald Trump did warm tensions with North Korea quite a bit. Um, again, going back to our last conversation with Doctor Balkan Devlin, he talked about how he got that prediction about a Trump the meeting uh, back in 20, I think 17 or 18, uh, very wrong. He thought it wasn't going to happen, but in fact, it ended up happening. Um, so I think it's possible that you know if what's the time horizon by 2022 by 2022. I think it would require a show of force from Biden um to sort of spur that, that that type of action. Um and I feel like Biden has enough on his plate we've been talking about the Abrams Accords and, and the DCPOA and COVID nineteen and you know, racial issues domestically. I feel like um granted you can do more than one thing at once. I just feel like, you know, there's think, not gonna be
1: Yeah. I think my issue with this is the technicalities of this question or really, seemingly yeah, that I, I read here, which is right with a missile, with a range of more than 5,500 kilometers. Now who's it doesn't, does it have to go 5,500 kilometers? Does North Korea just have to say it's 5,500 kilometers? Cause if that's the case, I think it's quite likely that that they will test an ICBM and they will say that that ICBM, um, is capable of going full distance, of going you know super far, but is like that the missile? This has to
0: be able to go that distance and carry warhead. Well, and they, they could have, just
1: say. It, I guess they have to. They just have to be able to say that it goes right. Because how else are they gonna test? Like, do they have to like release their missile plans online and have a peer-reviewed journal study say that? Right. Well, I think. Cause they could just claim that enough... it goes far enough. Right. I think
0: there's that the air defense systems in neighboring, not neighboring, but nearby countries like China would be able to identify this sort of, you know, aerial object that's in the air. But I guess it also depends on where they do the test. and and. Um, no, it's, it's just test. more
1: so like, can the missile actually go that far? Right? right. They might test like a quote ICBM.
0: I just feel like it'd be hard to like, uh, you know, launch a, a little mini missile, and then say, "Oh yeah, that was you know that was the one," and you know China's like, "We saw it on our radar. That was not a, that was an ICBM."
1: Yeah, that was just a uh, that was about? just a paper airplane that 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 exactly shut off, and they had some sparklers behind it.
0: Um, um so I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. I think I re- my instinct is to say that it'll happen if Kim feels threatened by the new U.S. administration or he, or he and, just
1: domestically feels like he needs to show force, right? He could also just do it cuz if 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 he's revealed this already that he has this missile quote unquote back in October, the question is is he going to have it out and try it out? Like it'd be interesting to see like question. when they announced other things and versus like when they tested it.
0: There's a story I was going to bring up earlier just in terms of geopolitical news that is related to this. Um, in the Czech Republic, back in 2014, there were plans to build a state-controlled nuclear reactor. Plans got scrapped, and people are waiting, basically, for the Czech Republic to put out a tender. You know, people are waiting to bid to build a new nuclear reactor in the Czech Republic. And on the list of people waiting to bid is South Korea. So if South Korea started building a nuclear reactor in the Czech Republic, you know, saying, oh, it's just for, you know, carbon light energy moving forward. But really, it's so that they can start developing their own or continue developing their own nuclear weapons. Maybe that would be enough to push, uh, push him to take action. I don't know. But it seems like he is a big fan of shows of force. So I think he'll need to feel like there needs to be a show of force.
1: He has done one every single year. An ICBM. No, he hasn't tested a single ICBM. I don't think. No, he did a submarine really launch. He did it. In, he did an intermediate range ballistic missile, short range, short range, short range. Here, I'm off your Wikipedia here. Um, oh well, there's one that made Maybe it. It's like... They launched an ICBM in 2017 that made it 28. Yeah, I think they did. They made it 4,500. Yep, another one,
0: 2017. What? I think that's when we all got the alerts on our phone. Uh, oh yeah, another ICBM. I'll well, tell you
1: about my reading comprehension skills. There's a lot of ICBMs. who boy just not reading at all. <laughs> I IC, see. ICBM. So one, two, three. They've tested. Three. And when did they announce the first ICBM?
0: I, it was 20, I feel like it was all 27, or at least it No, when did they like announce it? Oh. Like, did they like announce it? I can't imagine much It would be interesting because apparently they paraded around an ICBM in October of last year during a parade Um. so perhaps there's some, some pattern between showing off an ICBM and launching it
1: Yeah, I actually there wasn't like a pre-announcement, I mean, it doesn't look like and they did for this other one. Okay, so it's probably pretty likely. The one thing that is interesting is if you look here, let me so you can see it.
0: Are they um, showing it off so that they don't have to actually launch it? Is the question. The I think.
1: community predictions, if you look at them, have become
0: a little more bullish over time. Do you just want to describe what you're seeing? Yeah, the, so if listeners. you look at the
1: all time ones, there's there's just a higher percentage of them that's say 70% plus and right now there's just a few more that's in the 50% and below in particular down below there's looks like some two people or maybe three that have
0: claimed the 20% probability um, mm-hmm. seems like there's actually a pretty steep raw off in terms of people's confidence
1: yeah recently early February
0: yeah, an early. I mean, February, it's nowhere like near from, like
1: it's still right. The bottom range was still lower in the past, but it had, definitely has dipped down a bit
0: from 75 to I guess 70% now, a 5% drop. And it looks like, you know, the course of a day. Um, I'm not sure what happened on February 9th, was it? I feel like February we've definitely 10th?
1: gone over five minutes. So let's uh
0: start making a prediction.
1: Let's start making a prediction.
0: Okay. Well, so I think we can start. How do you feel um, just relative to where the community is right now? Do you feel like it's higher or lower than that 70%?
1: Given that people have been trending a little, I would say like slightly below it, but not maybe like 66, like really like not much different, like two thirds perhaps. Um, I I mean, it could be a coin flip, like 50-50 could also reflect my confidence on my ability to predict this question as of right now. Cause I think there's, if you looked at, you know, the only, they revealed it in 2017, tested 2017, then no test 2018, 2019, 2020. Could they go big in 2021 with the new administration? I mean, that, I, I, I could buy that. I could also buy the fact they just, they're not going to test it this year because of COVID, right? still complicating things. The fact they only tested one missile at all in 2020. Um, I don't know.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking lower as well. I think there's, you know, a few constraints, COVID included, that maybe would make the, the chances of them testing one of these missiles less likely. I think also maybe this is completely irrelevant. Um, but something I was just thinking about, I remember at the last Olympics, I'm pretty sure North Korea and South Korea formed like a joint Korea team. <laughs> to compete um there is an olympic scheduled for this year i'm curious as to whether or not uh you know if, if it's not canceled that plays any role in north korea's decision to sort of antagonize the rest of the world versus in this very trying time try and come together run back what they did last time in south korea um you know and not launch a missile so i don't know but i do agree lower um you said 66 to 50 yeah 66 to 50 that's a pretty decent range um i think i'm leaning more towards that towards that coin toss likelihood um than being you know probable but i could get behind somewhere in the 55 to 60 percent range at the current time 55 to 60
1: and i would probably let's Let's see what this So if you looks want to like. go
0: to the higher range and go to 60.
1: Well, no, I like that at 60, I mean, we are making points both ways, um, which is always a nice thing, and that's not how you're supposed to do it. Not good incentives. <laughs> but I think that indicates, right, it's more likely than not that it happens. But at the same time, it is, we feel, uh, a coin toss, at least. Right? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a slightly weighted coin toss, is what we're saying more or
0: less. I think that's right. I think that's right. Because it's also what came to mind is like that that earthquake logic where like if there's a place that hasn't had an earthquake or a volcano erupt in a long time, maybe that's a sign that it's primed to have one. You know, if North Korea hasn't launched one of these missiles since 2017 and they showed one off at the end of last year, you know, it could be on the horizon. So I think it's more likely than not. But I think there's also a lot of constraints that um, are sort of pressing that likelihood down a bit.
1: I do remember, actually, so we're going to go ahead and say the percent, the odds that North Korea launches an ICBM again before 2020 to be 60 um, percent. Yep. Predict. Did that, did that happen? Yeah. Okay. We did. Um, Oh, and we, we got, we got the median down. That's us. Um, I do think what, what, what's going to be interesting, um, is I remember reading a paper that uh, there was some sort of machine learning algorithm, I believe, with newspapers in the region of North Korea that was able to be a good indicator of if North Korea was going to do a missile or, or nuclear test. And it'd be interesting to see if we could set up something like that to actually give ourselves a little bit more insight. Because uh, if, you are, if you're just listening to this podcast, this question um, closes before October 14th. So one of two things happen between now and October 14th. We can change our prediction if nothing happens. And if North Korea uh, launches an ICBM, then the question resolves um, as is. And so I think, you know, that'd be interesting for us to set up because there there was an academic paper that was peer reviewed that found um, actual predictive capabilities for North Korea missile tests. And so it would be interesting to see if we get that set up and if that'll help us make that prediction any better.
0: It's funny because I think people typically associate North Korea with being unpredictable and having an irrational leader, you know, you you can't predict what their actions are going to be. But apparently, you know, with with innovation and technology, um maybe some of those things will become a bit clearer. So that's kind of cool.
1: Yep. And um well, Andrew, it has been already I think 40 minutes on this podcast. We had if you guys uh, could see our agenda, a lot more things that we wanted to get to this week. Let's get to, I think, two more of our subjects,
0: we'll... Yeah, I think um, doing that Metacus Prediction actually set this up really well, um, to talk about the good judgment open um, and how to become a super forecaster, which are um, both things that, you know, all the skills that we just talked about, the way that we approach the question, um, you know, maybe you have critique, feel free to leave them in the comment section. Um, but that's sort of thinking that is necessary to both participate in the open and ultimately become a super forecaster.
1: Um, yeah, I think that's a great final topic. Um, I brought this up. So, um, the good judgment open is run by the good judgment project. Um, and the good judgment project is where the term super forecasting comes from that book by Philip Tetlock and Dan Gardner, um, Basically, there are these uh, intelligence community-sponsored forecasting competitions, and the Good Judgment Project was one of the uh, original um, organizations that thought that you could put humans together to make really accurate forecasts, and they ended up coming out on top on a lot of the initial um, first rounds of these predicting tournaments. And so Good Judgment has sort of become one of the uh, forecasting uh, teams in these um, competitions, and on their website, they've now spun that off into their own private business called uh, the Good Judgment Inc. Um, yep. And so they have uh, the Good Judgment Open, which is just questions that their super forecasters answers open to the public, and people make predictions. I think once you've made a hundred predictions, you are eligible to become a quote super forecaster. And super forecasters are people that uh, are proven to be statistically uh, better than the mean or median uh, community forecaster that answers on good judgment. Right, Andrew? Yeah, I think
0: that's right. I think um, you have to, as you said, have answered at least 100 of these questions um, to be eligible. I think then every fall they pick, as you said, people that outperform the community, um, the crowd consistently. And then you're Basically invited to join, I think what they call like a pro super selection process, and that's like a three-month trial. Um, and should you do well during that trial, then yeah, you become a professional super forecaster, um, and all the sort of accolades and privileges that come along with that. Um, I'm gonna plug you really quickly, play. The forecasting challenges on the Good Judgment Open, uh, some of them are sponsored by different organizations or, or individuals. Um, two of the challenges are sponsored by Adam Grant, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania and the university of pennsylvania's mac institute um and the university of pennsylvania is also home i believe to phil tetlock and also they have a political risk lab um it's sort of a like a mecca for for geopolitical risk in that sense um and that is also plays alma mater so every time he speaks just know that he's coming with that with that wise uh expertise and wisdom from from Penn. so that's pretty cool you no know, we don't have to talk about
1: Penn. it's a, it's a fine university, <laughs> it's a
0: fine university. <laughs>
1: um no all all the professors at penn are phenomenal and they do some really great research there um there we go especially with good judgment and i think what'll be good for us with um answering questions for the good judgment open um that's on that website is not that we're going to become super forecasters but that it creates like this sort of end goal that we can get to is trying to become you know good enough that we are super forecasters and to do that i think we'll have to start you know getting more methodical and better about how we do forecasts. And so what I mentioned to you is that like, we should start timing our forecasts, because I believe in super forecasting, Tetlock says that super forecasters spend 30, it's like 30 minutes to four hours, I honestly, it's somewhere in that range, which seems like range, a very large range on the shorter side, yeah, probably, maybe, yeah maybe two hours but like for us like we some of our predictions can be longer than that and so i think starting to time our predictions and getting more consistent about uh, our approach and the time that we spend deliberating i think will just help make us better forecasters um so that's what i'm looking forward to about answering these questions there is really sort of um Almost having it be like a more regimented practice of forecasting rather than things like the Metaculous Mondays or uh, the election prediction series uh, or just, you know, uh, like news interest uh, forecast that we do that is a little bit more um, hobby-esque. This will sort of make it a little bit more principled in terms of how we do forecasts if we want to actually become super forecasters.
0: Yeah, a few things. Um, just for context, both of our past interviewees are both super forecasters with the Good Judgment Project. So if you're interested in knowing, knowing more about what those super forecasters are like or how they think about predictions, definitely check out those interviews. Um, but also, I think what you said is correct in terms of uh, timing the forecast, just because I sort of see forecasts almost like art, where you could spend forever working on a painting, and just by nature of spending forever, it might end up looking okay. That doesn't mean that the fundamental skills are there. I think if you time yourself, um, you know, use your intuition, rely on those skills as opposed to just time and iteration, that is a better test of if you're getting things right. And so I think, you know, the same things apply to forecasting. I think you can spend a long time getting caught up in all the different variables that might be relevant to a question, and that'll take you forever and maybe make the prediction ultimately less accurate. Or you can time it, try and be regimented, and only include the absolutely pertinent things like the story you told about marco poppik on the phone where he had to come up with something very quickly um and that ultimately would be more beneficial
1: yeah and um that that is a good point with uh it's kind of like we're, we're we're going from a woodworker to a carpenter you know it's 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 taking it from from art to uh to uh, something a little bit more practical of a yeah. of a creation um, yeah, but we'll still be artists on the side, and or actually probably it's the other way around. We'll, be,
0: we'll mostly be artists with
1: our with our Metaculous Monday and other predictions. But we're going to make progress on the Good Judgment Open too. Um, that's right. And hopefully that's become right. super forecasters. But I think that's what everyone thinks, and not everyone can be super. So we'll see. And, and not
0: everyone can be super. That's a great quote. That's a great quote. Should the quote um, we want
1: to end it on? Oh, not a, not everyone can be super. No, we have to end it positively. Everyone can become super.
0: There we go. I like Everybody <laughs> can become C-first. not, not going to try. Just leave it on that. Um, yeah, I mean, do you have any other stories or anything else you wanted to bring up this week? GameStop. Um, anything that's, GameStop. that's lingering on your mind? Talk about GameStop.
1: Geopolitical implications I'm sure. of that, you know, the U.S. stock exchange is just kind of a meme at this point.
0: It's funny because as much geopolitical... as GameStop seems like a meme, I think the ripple on effects might actually exist. I mean, you think about, you You were talking about the VIX, right? And the stock market crashing. I think with GameStop activity, AMC, people are losing confidence in the stock market. When people lose confidence in the stock market, they want to move their money into more stable investments. I just also mean like internationally,
1: right? Like we're always like, oh yeah, Chinese financial technology and all of that's kind of, you know, not as up to date. And that's probably true. But at the same time, the U.S. financial system is... Can apparently, if you are to believe what was said during the congressional hearings, quite possibly brought down by a, a you know, the, the store thing. that we all, you know, sold our games to and made five bucks for each copy. I mean, That's
0: right. You know, we're finally getting it's, our it's money's it's worth.
1: GameStop, right? Like, there, there's something to be said that um, U.S. the dollar is supposed to be a stable thing and everything is like great, but. You know, there was all these rumblings after 2008 about moving away from the dollar into a international reserve currency. And I mean, that's a globalist wet dream, so it's definitely not going to happen. But, you know, things like that are happening right now where financial markets can be destabilized by GameStop is something that's probably not, you know, the Biden administration would prefer not happening right now with everything else.
0: No, it's definitely not ideal. Um, and I agree. I do think we're probably going to see less. I'll categorize it as, as greed in the stock market. So less leveraging up companies, less ridiculously high P.E. ratios, um, less ridiculously shorted stock. And you're going to see more people investing in, in cyclicals and in your GEs and your companies that um, you can really map the fundamentals to the stock price that aren't so inflated by a you know, number of factors. So it'll be interesting to watch definitely this year.
1: Or we'll be very wrong and everyone will put their money in CryptoKitties and Dogecoin. Uh, Palantir and Neo and the world will continue to be a complete mystery.
0: It may. It listen, I feel for investors who at one point thought they had a grasp of what was going on and that they understood, <laughs> you know, securities analysis and now they're looking at, you know, Redditors. And they're uh, looking at Yep, they're looking at the rocket emojis
1: and trying to think about what what their strategy is.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to understand. And listen, it's tough when the other people don't exactly have a strategy. So um, so yeah, no, it'll be interesting to watch for sure. I'm excited for that. Alright,
1: everyone, that is episode two of the Global Guessing Weekly Podcast. Uh, find us over at globalguessing.com, Twitter at Global Guessing, Facebook at Global Guessing, and this is the real shocker, LinkedIn, also Global Guessing. Wow. There it is. My name is Clay. You can find me at Clay Graubart on Twitter, but
0: no need and uh, co-host yeah this is andrew Eady. you can find me at, at andrew j Eady on twitter um but again no no real need just keep it real casual at the end just really just knock it down a notch it's great exactly all
1: right anything all right, else
0: until next time oh yeah, that's great
1: all right and that's a wrap